You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. So good to see all of you today. Um, I'm John, one of the pastors here. And before we jump into the book of James, I have a few announcements I want to underline. Most important one is next Sunday, remember that daylight savings ends which means we go to normal time, God's time. And, and so don't forget to set your clock back uh, for an hour. Get extra hours of sleep because if you come at this time, you'll come at the middle of first service and you'll be so embarrassed that you weren't here. For the, okay, okay. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We're glad to have you at Creekside. And uh, we'd like to give you a gift of appreciation uh, that you can get from the information desk, which is right out here in the foyer. Some people call it the foyer, but you're incorrect. It's the foyer. And uh, anyway, we have uh, a sippy cup, a water bottle, and a coffee tumbler, and you're welcome to, to one of those. You know, Jesus said, uh, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I've loved you. That you love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And that means that that... The way we love each other as Christians is one of the major marks that people can see of Christ in us. You think about how much of your week you're really around other Christians, and for many of us, it's not that much. And that's why we really emphasize community groups in our church. We've been doing community groups ever since we began 30 years ago. And if you're not in one of these small weekly groups, uh, I really encourage you to to investigate them. You can find out more information about them at our website. Um, we have them every night, just about, and uh, there are groups for anywhere from six to a dozen, maybe even 20 people that get together to, to encourage each other, pray, read the Bible, and uh, just in, enjoy each other. Uh, if you'd like more information, you can just, on the little card in front of you, just put your name and, and contact information, and just put CG, we'll know that's community groups, and we'll get that to you. Drop that over in the offering box. You can also put any prayer requests that you have there. Let's pray as we uh, jump into, uh, into the Scripture this morning. Thank you for your promise, Lord Jesus, that when you send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, uh, He will teach us all the things that we're to know. And we pray that your Spirit will teach us this morning from your word that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to obey and believe and apply the things you have for us. Lord, we really can't learn apart from you. And so we pray that you will be our instructor and that we will have uh, attentive uh, ears to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you noticed that, that just about every week some prominent person blows up their career by saying something they later regret. I mean, it just, Mark Davis wanted John Grudem to be the coach of the Raiders so badly that he gave him the largest contract in NFL history. He was the highest paid NFL coach, $100 million for 10 years. And Grudem blew it all up when a series of misogynistic and racist and homophobic emails came to light. Some of you may remember uh, Michael Richards, who play, played Cosmo on Seinfeld, one of the most popular uh, comedians in America, 
until he lost his temper doing stand-up in an L.A. Com uh, comedy club and, and started to racially attack a heckler, and video of it went online, and he hasn't had work since. Brian Williams was one of the most respected anchors in network television until he exaggerated his exploits in covering the Iraq war, and now you're lucky to find him on, on the littlest cable station out there. And not just prominent people. We've all said things probably this last week. They said, oh, why did I say that? I wish I hadn't said that. Our, our tongue is a problem. Isn't that true? And, and that's what James is going to talk about in James chapter 3. James chapter 3 is, is built on something James said earlier in the book. Back in chapter 1, he said, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, and by religious, James means devoted to God, living with Christ as Lord of your life. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. If your relationship with God can't be seen in what you say, then you may not have the relationship with God you think you have. And so James explains how that works in chapter 3, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. Chapter 3 falls into two parts. The first part defines the problem, and that's what we'll look at today. The second part defines the solution, and that's what Jeff will talk about next week. So my job is just to convince you that you have a problem. <laughs> and that it's a problem that you can't solve by yourself. So I get the hopeful day. So anyway, this really isn't a chapter on the tongue. It's a chapter about how the church chooses leaders. He's writing to Jewish Christians, and because they had grown up as Jews, they were used to being led by rabbis, by teachers of the Scripture. And so when they became Christians, because many of them had a rich Old Testament background, they immediately assumed they were qualified to be leaders in the church. But James says, not so fast. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. James says, don't be in a hurry to become a teacher in the church. Because a higher standard of judgment will be applied to you than to other people because your role is so crucial to the health of the church. Now, when I read that, alarm bells go off because I'm thinking, wait a minute. I thought when I believe in Jesus, I pass from judgment into life. I thought God said, your sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. That when Christ died for my sins, he died for all my sins, past, present, and future. That by one offering, he's made me perfect for all time. So what's this judgment stuff? Because I didn't think I got judged anymore. And yet you'll see the word judgment appearing all the way through this letter. I think the judgment that James is talking about is not eternal judgment. Because we will never face eternal judgment because of Christ. But the Bible says that God judges his own people in this life. He's a loving father. He disciplines every child he receives. He, he will not let us be happy with things that will destroy us. 
That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 4, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, if we judge ourselves, we won't be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not uh, be, be, perish along with the rest of the world. That God doesn't judge other people's kids. He judges his own kids. And he disciplines us. We can't just... Uh, happily keep continuing in sin and think, well, God's already forgiven it because God disciplines us. He chastises us so that to, to free us from the things that are destroying us. I think that's the kind of judgment James is talking about here. Be careful about becoming a teacher because a higher standard will be applied to you. That's why Christians often have rougher lives than non-Christians in this life because we have a, a father who disciplines us for our sin. That's the idea here. Well, why not become a teacher? For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. seems to me James is saying the last thing we get control of is our tongue. So if you can control your tongue, you can control everything else, and the, and the test for whether you're ready to become a teacher of the church is your ability to bridle your own tongue. And James tells us three reasons why. First of all, he tells us the tongue is powerful. Look what he says. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Now, what does a bit in a horse's mouth, a rudder on a sailing ship, and a spark in a forest have in common? They're all small, and yet they're able to control something big. When I was a kid, uh, my uncle had horses, and they were just big, ill-tempered brutes, and I did not like them at all. I was scared to death of them. But because it was family, I had to ride along with everybody else, and I found that even though I was terrified of this horse, I could still make it turn to the right or to the left and make it stop. Uh, as long as I held on to the bridles. That's the little bit and that little boy could actually control this huge horse. I couldn't keep it from brushing me against trees to knock me off and doing like, I've always disliked horses. Um, James says that's where our tongue is. Our tongue is like the rudder on a sailing ship. It directs the course of your life. How many friendships have been ruined by just some chance thing you said. How, how many jobs have been lost? How many things have gone wrong? And that's why he compares the tongue to a, a spark in a forest. It's not only powerful. The second thing he says, it's destructive. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and is set on fire, sets on fire the course of our life, 
and is set on fire by hell. Bible says that we have three enemies, right? World, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the culture we live in, which is uh, determined by people who are rebellious against God. The flesh is that part of us in which sin dwells and is still trying to reign over us. And the devil is the evil intelligence behind the world and and the flesh. Well, our tongue, James says, is in league with the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is the part of us that is, is most likely to be controlled. It's set on fire by hell and set on fire the course of our life. Our tongue will ruin our life because it's not only powerful, it's by nature destructive. And so we automatically think, wow, I better get control of my tongue. And James says not so fast because the tongue is not only powerful, it's not only destructive, it's also untamable. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You know, it's amazing what people can tame, isn't it? Lions, tigers, bears, oh my. (laughs) Killer whales, fleas. I mean... People can train animals to do all kinds of things, but the one thing those tamers can't do is train their own tongue. Just ask their family. That the, the tongue cannot be tamed. And, and James brings up, remember the problem in, that James is addressing throughout this letter is double-mindedness. Double-mindedness has is, is, is been a problem for religious people forever. It's just a refusal to commit ourselves to God wholly. It's just kind of, you know, if, if God offers me a better deal, I'll do what God wants me to do. If, if sin looks more attractive, I'll do that. When I'm with Christians, I'll sound like a Christian. When I'm with secular people, I'll sound like a secular people. Just whatever seems to benefit me at the most. And James says the tongue reflects that double-mindedness. Look what he says. With it. We bless our Lord and Father, and with it it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought to not be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. James says, because your tongue can't be tamed, it reflects the real you, and you're double-minded. Just as as you don't get fresh water and filthy water from the same fountain, you don't get figs from grapes or, or, or olives from figs, you don't get salt water from fresh except with modern technology. Uh, the problem isn't your tongue. The problem is you. You can't fake it. Your tongue will always reveal the real you. Up until the 1980s, miners would take a little canary in a cage down into the mine with them to detect the presence of carbon monoxide. The problem with carbon monoxide, as you know, is it's not only deadly, but it's odorless. And so there was no way they could know if there was carbon monoxide. So they took these little canaries in the cage. As long as the canary's chirping, everybody's happy. 
But if the canary goes quiet and dies, everybody gets out of the mine as fast as they can. Your tongue is the canary in the mine. The canary isn't the problem. It's the deadly carbon monoxide. Your tongue isn't the problem. It's the person who owns the tongue. The tongue just reveals what we really are. And that's why James says, back in chapter 1, he says, if anyone thinks he's mature, if anyone thinks he's religious, if anyone thinks he's devoted to Christ and yet unable to bridle his own tongue, he deceives himself. Well, I thought James just said that no one can tame the tongue. No one can bridle the tongue. No one can, but Jesus can. Jesus gives us the power to take control of the things that sin has controlled all of our lives. And so, therefore, how I control my tongue is a test of my real relationship with Jesus. You see that? Now, why does James take the tongue so seriously? I think it's because he knew his Old Testament. And he knew especially the book of Proverbs. The theme of Proverbs is wisdom which the Hebrews defined as skill in living. For the, for the Hebrews, wisdom wasn't academic. It wasn't the wisdom of the university. It was the wisdom of the street. It was the ability to make wise decisions. There are 800 proverbs, and more than a quarter of those deal directly with the tongue. So there's a lot about the tongue in proverbs. And so what I did is I just went through proverbs to see what it's said about the tongue, and I came up with five ways to tell that you have an unbridled tongue. Now, you want to just close in prayer, or do you want to? Or, or, or shall we take a look? We'll take a look, okay? So, five ways to tell if you have an unbridled tongue, according to the book of Proverbs. Way number one, do I speak without thinking? I've noticed that some people have no on-deck circle. No place where they take a few practice swings. They, as soon as they think it, they say it. Know what I mean? He, the one who guards his mouth, preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. That's the idea of bridling or restraining your tongue. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. The righteous is intentional on what they say. They think about what they say before they say it. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Do you ever feel like, I just got to talk. I just got to say this. I, I've got to get, I know the answer here. Let me talk, let me talk. You get the idea. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Wise people listen to their heart before they talk. Is this a wise thing to say? What will be the consequences of saying this? Is this the best way to say it? He who gives an answer before he hears, it's a folly and a shame to him. I am working on not giving advice when no one asks for it. Because what I've discovered is that when I give advice that is unasked for, I'm always giving the wrong advice to the wrong person. And they'll say, well, thank you for that, but my real problem is, and I'll just feel like an idiot, uh, I'm giving an answer 
before I've really listened, right? Uh, do not go out hastily to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end when your neighbor humiliates you? Have you ever gotten in an argument and you're sure you're right until the other person gives their side and you pretend that you don't believe it, but you know they've nailed you? That's, that's the idea. Uh, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Now, yeah, I've got to see this verse in context. Because before this verse, there are seven or eight verses on how bad fools are. I mean, how they just ruin everything, how they're idiots, you know, just fool's a jerk, fool's a jerk, fool's a jerk. But then he says, do you see a man who's hasty in his word? He's worse than that fool we just talked about. So if you feel like you've got to talk, if you're always the one that's got to get your two cents in, the Bible says you have an unbridled tongue. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. He who restrains his lips is wise. If you don't bridle your tongue, your relationship with Christ is not what you think it is. That's first one, one evidence. Here's another way to tell if I have a, am I a know-it-all? Are you the resident expert on everything? Do you always have to have the last word? Then Proverbs would say, you have an unbridled tongue. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Just because I know something doesn't mean I have to say it. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. I have a bad habit. My friends will share with me something they're really excited about they learned out of the Bible. But I will say something like, well, that's great, but... And I'll have to tell them the context, or I'll have to tell, here's my insight. You know, you just pour cold water all over them because they didn't come because they wanted to be corrected. They came because they were excited about something they learned. The fool doesn't delight in understanding. He just wants to express his own opinion. Does that make sense? Am I a know-it-all? Here's a third one. How to have a number? Do I ever lie? Now, I know that doesn't apply to any of you, but just in case you know any liars, you can take this down for them. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are His delight. God takes all lies seriously. Big lies, medium-sized lies, little compact lies. Lie is a lie. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. If you get to the top by lying, you won't be there for long because God is not mocked. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. I want you to notice here that Solomon equates lying to flattery. Isn't that interesting? What's the difference between flattery and encouragement? Encouragement is telling somebody something to, for their benefit. Flattery is telling somebody something for your benefit. When I was a younger pastor, I, I was really a sucker for flattery. Because people would come, oh, you're such a good speaker, not like my old pastor, and stuff like that. This person must be a very spiritual person. 
They must, they're very discerning. They, they really, until I began to see them manipulating and getting their way and, and all kinds. And I realized I was just set up. I was just set up. I was a sucker for it. Let's see. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. I, I was reading Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, I, and I thought I would fall right into this trap. Pharisees say to Jesus, now we know you are a righteous man who defers to no one but only speaks the truth. You know, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And I thought I would fall right into that trap because I want to be the man who defers to no man. I want to be the one who only speaks the truth. And I would have, and what they've given him, they've got him, given him a question that there's no right answer, right? Because if you say it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, all the people are mad at you. And if you say, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Romans are mad at you. They're going to get him either way. But Jesus doesn't fall in the trap because he recognizes their flattery. And he says, show me a coin. And they show him a coin. And he says, whose picture's on it? Well, Caesar's. Well, it belongs to Caesar. Then give Caesar what belongs to him. Give God what belongs to him. It's a, it's a genius third alternative. But that's another story. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Let me ask you a question. Would those who know you best say that you're a truth teller or you're just a nice, inoffensive person? That is an evidence of whether you have a bridled, unbridled tongue or not. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, people will curse him, nations will abhor him, but to those who rebuke the wicked will be delight and a good blessing will come upon them. The mature person speaks truth, no matter how it, how it will affect the people. The immature person, the person who has not bridled his tongue, will tell people what they want to hear. That's, that's his point. Let's look at another evidence of an unbridled tongue. Do I gossip about or slander others? It's interesting that the Scripture puts gossip and slander together. They're not exactly the same thing. Both involve revealing confidential information. Gossip isn't always motivated by malice. Slander always is. But they're the same thing. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. You ever had a close friend? You told him something, and all of a sudden you found everybody else knew? important warning sign here. Don't tell her anything because it won't be private, right? He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. Now, people who slander, people who put other people down, they don't think of themselves as motivated by hatred. They just are giving you useful information that everybody ought to know because you need to be protected from this person too. But Solomon says, no, they're motivated by a heart of hatred. A perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. She said that about me? He said that? Have you ever noticed that, that, uh, that slander begins to divide people? Boy, the social media is slander on, on steroids, isn't it? People have, have lost friends. They've lost jobs. They've lost all kinds of stuff because of things they posted online about, about other people. With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. He who despises his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding, what? 
keeps silent. Again, bridles his tongue. Doesn't talk trash about others. One more. One more evidence of unbridled tongue. Do I got? Well, I guess we're still on this one, aren't we? Sorry. He said, familiar with his notes. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. You ever had a person say, now, don't tell anybody this? And then what'd you do? It's just one other person, right? He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Did you ever talk to her about that? You know, she, she really did hurt you. You know, you're past it. But there's some people who always put salt in the wound, bring it up again, keep repeating it, keep bringing it up. Bible says that's a, an unbridled tongue. Finally, am I ever harsh, negative, or angry? A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Somebody comes at you, they're mad at you for something, and you can defend yourself, or you can be curious and say, interesting, tell me more. Let, let me know how, how that came across. Which reaction creates more anger? When you defend yourself, right? Because you're basically trying to shut, tell them they're wrong. They don't want to hear your arguments. They just want to tell you how you made them feel. But the person who responds with gentleness and curiosity, and re I really want to hear you out on this, they pacify that argument. Uh, there is one who speaks rationally like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Have you found that when you feel like I've got to say something, you always say the wrong thing? It's like you got this sword, you're just wildly swinging around and cutting into people and stuff like that. He who has a crooked mind finds no good, and he who is perverted in his language falls into evil. I like that. He who has a crooked mind finds no good. I have found that pessimists never think of themselves as pessimists. They always call themselves realists. Isn't that true? I, I'm sorry. I just see life as it is. And, and that's the way I am. I, I, I can, I, I'm a problem solver, so I'm always looking for problems. Well, that's fine, but what about this? And, and what I found is that that's not reality because there's just as much stuff to be thankful for and to be positive about as there's things to be critical of. And, and the person with the negative mind who, who's always complaining, always criticizing, um, always correcting, basically has an unbridled tongue. They're not seeing reality. The north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. A fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. For lack of wood, the fire goes out where there is no whisper, contention quiets down. Have you noticed that negative speech, complaining speech, critical speech is contagious and you just make other people mad? Nobody wants to have you around. I, uh, I like to walk. But one of my pet peeves is dog owners who don't leash their animals. And I'll be walking along, and some dog will come bounding up to me and jump up with his paws on my chest. And the dog owner says something like, It's okay, he's friendly. Oh, good. I love having a muddy chest. 
and a slobbery face are worse. The dog will be aggressive, and he'll start to snarl and snap, and, 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 and the dog owner will say, I don't know why he's doing that. He's usually so friendly, as if it's my fault. I don't blame the dog. He's just being a dog. I blame the owner. Our tongue is the dog. You see? Our tongue's just being a tongue. It's our job to bridle it. I thought James said that no one can tame the tongue. No one can but Jesus. And when Jesus comes into your life, he gives you the ability to take control of the things that sin has controlled for years. And that's why James says the test for a spiritual leader is his ability to control his tongue. That's the idea. Jeff will talk about that next week. I, I uh, became a Christian 53 years ago because I was sick of the person I was. And I was told that Jesus could make me new. And for the last 53 years, he's been doing that. And next week, we'll find out how exactly he makes us new, how he, how he gives us the ability to take the things in our life that sin has controlled and gives us the power to control them as well. Here's what I want you to think about in the next week. If all anybody knew about my relationship with Christ was what came out of my mouth, how would they evaluate my walk? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to release us from sin. And whoever the Son frees is free indeed. Thank you that you give us the power to control our tongue and to make it a blessing. Thank you. You've said that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.